Welcome to All the Things with Monique Dusan from the Center for Biblical Unity and theology mom, Krista Bontrager. And now, here's Krista and Monique. Good evening. Welcome to All the Things. I am Monique Dusan. And I am Krista Bontrager. We just jump right in there. Also known as Theology Mom. And this is the show where we talk about God, the Bible, and real life every week. Ain't that my line? I'm just... I'm jumping on your line. That's all right. That's all right. And helping us out on this show tonight is Bob Bontrager. There he is. The man who's... The genius behind what we're doing here. <laughs> the man who, without which there would be no there all be the no, things no show. at all. <laughs> we would just be talking to ourselves. Yeah. That would be it. And joining us in the chat room and on, well, I'm on Facebook, but in our YouTube chat room, we have our moderators. Who's there tonight? I know I saw Laura Hartley. Uh, I think Emily's going to be jumping on. I think Caleb's jumping on. I think... Uh, Jeremy's going to be there. Okay. We we got some people. All right. Yeah. Seeing our friends jumping on here. Candy's there. Alyssa. What are you guys doing? Sorry. I'm getting cues to scoot back. Oh. Uh, Apparently, I... um, All right. I I was taken over. I was in like two spaces. Okay. So I just want to make sure, you know? So I think Texas is going through some kind of crazy ice storm situation. So some of our Texas viewers won't be moving to Texas. Yeah, (laughs) I need to go somewhere where it is sunny all the time. That that would be where we are pretty much. California. Oh, no, it was cold today. (laughs) Well, thank you for watching. Please support the show by hitting that like button and the share button. Share. Thumbs up. Give us some love and let your friends know. We're having a really important conversation today. I think it'll be fun. We are. We are having an important conversation. We always want to explain The reason we encourage people to hit that thumbs up, make a comment, share the show is because that is what signals big tech to that people want to hear the show. And and so we need everybody to hit that thumbs up. And it's very important because that forces the artificial intelligence to push out the show to more people. Yes. Even if you don't want to hear the show, just can you give some sisters some love? That's all I'm saying. That's all I'm saying. And our show is brought to you by the Center for Biblical Unity. Theology Mom podcast. And Family 210 Clothing. Yes. And we have a new sponsor to tell you about a little later in the show. It's exciting. So our, our Family 210 design of the week. Got the guys in mind here of... I like this design. Bob did this one a while back of the Old Testament, New Testament, all pointing to Christ. Jesus Christ is the bridge connecting all of the Bible. So that's a good one. So you could just go to the bit.ly uh, link there and slash family 210. And you can see all of our family's designs and help support our family. Yeah. Help so, keep the lights on. That's right. And we have some cool designs. We even have some designs made by the resident teenager. That's right. Yes. Teenager designs. Yes. yes. Now, on today's show. Yes. We have Aaron Preston, doctor. That's right. Aaron Preston. I don't want, I don't want him to come on and be salty and sideways because <laughs> I didn't forgot his, his title. I'm sorry about that, cousin. Okay, but we have Dr. Aaron Preston on. And we are talking about MLK, Martin Luther King, 
versus or in comparison to this Black Lives Matter movement. I think this is going to be good. And our friend Aaron was on last fall helping talk to us about a very complicated topic, which was standpoint epistemology, which is a an aspect of 20th century postmodern philosophy. And he came in and did a wonderful job of trying to break down an extremely complicated topic that impacts us in our everyday life. If, any of, uh, if anyone has ever heard the phrase, my, my truth. truth, hashtag my truth. <laughs> this is standpoint epistemology. And this, at its best. Yes. So maybe go back and catch that show sometime if, if you missed it last fall. We wanted to have our friend Aaron on again yes. to talk about this topic. And, and because, so, because he's a philosopher yeah. by nature yeah, and by trade. Yes, right. So, so let's get that. Aaron on here from... Val Valsparo, do I have that right? University. Valparaiso. 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 Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm fired okay. already. You've only been on two seconds. It's a big, long word. <laughs> yeah. So mm-hmm. that is, from what I understand, is that a Lutheran school? It is. Okay. And you're in uh, Indiana. That's right. Okay. Yes. Where great. he said it is frigid and advised me never to go. <laughs> That's right. So it is our, very cold right now. Our big question tonight is, is the Black Lives Matter movement the kind of the logical extension of the civil rights movement that was headed up, up by Martin Luther King? Because that is a claim that's being made. And right. maybe um, we could start, Aaron, by you just kind of telling us a little bit about um, just big picture about why you're interested in this topic. Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, so I'm going to start with my own uh, research as a philosopher. When I first uh, started out, this is back when I was a graduate student, I became very interested in why contemporary philosophy in sort of mainstream academic circles is done very differently from the way it has been done throughout most of Western history. So. For most of Western history, philosophy, if we were to sort of describe its overarching task, it would be to formulate a rationally coherent and rationally well-founded worldview that relates human beings to the larger orders they inhabit, including social order, the cosmic order, and so forth. So philosophers have tried to understand human nature and and figure out how we fit into the bigger picture and to use that resulting worldview as kind of a map to direct us toward the good for human beings. So there's a a cognitive uh, aspect to the project, but there's also a moral or an ethical or a spiritual aspect to the project as well. But contemporary philosophy um, has sort of abandoned that uh, moral and spiritual side of the project and is really just interested in the cause and in the uh, cognitive project. Um, and they're really just interested in, in addressing very narrow questions and not creating big pictures at all. So I was very puzzled by this and I started looking into it. And um, ultimately it turned out that it had to do with what my mentor Dallas Willard had called the disappearance of moral knowledge. Now Dallas was writing a book uh, by that title uh, over the last decade of his life. And um, when he passed away in 2013, he handed it on to me and a couple of graduate school friends who are uh, philosophy professors at Biola. Um, and well, one of them is in, the, in, in theology, but uh, he's, a, he's a philosopher working in that department. Um, and so we finished this book for Dallas and, and I came to see that 
uh, much of my puzzlement about contemporary philosophy was explained by its abandonment of um, moral knowledge as something to aspire to, as something that was plausible uh, and possible to, uh, to obtain. Um, and that set me thinking, okay, well, how do we bring philosophy back around to um, its original task? And of course, over the last decade, we've seen American culture sort of spiraling further and further out of control, both on the political left and the political right, or so it seems to me. And we've, we really lost a kind of moral center that binds us all together. And I think that you know, philosophy's neglect of this problem has something to do with that, but it's a much bigger story. So I was looking for something that could be an antidote to this. And I found myself um, attracted to a philosophy called personalism, which had uh, been a, a fairly well-represented perspective through the middle of the 20th century when it all of a sudden started dwindling and then disappearing. Um, but what attracted me to personalism was the fact that I first found out that personalism had been the driving force behind the uh, human rights movement in Europe that eventually culminated in the United Nations Universal Declaration of Human Rights in 1948. And then I found out that Martin Luther King Jr. had been a card-carrying personalist. He had been trained in personalism at Boston University, and it radically and fundamentally shaped his approach to the civil rights movement. And much of what we admire about Martin Luther King is ultimately describable as the way in which he expressed in his life the theoretical commitments of personalism as a philosophy. And so I became very interested in personalism uh, long before the events of this past summer, which catapulted uh, the philosophy of, of the Black Lives Matter movement into uh, into the mainstream. Um, that kind of ideology was already operative on college and university campuses, um, and it was a worry. Um, but I was mainly interested in trying to find something that would just speak to American culture um, and and maybe bring us back to a moral center. And then when things really went off the rails this past summer, in the wake of you know George Floyd's death. Um, the importance of, of personalism took on a, a whole new level of meaning for me, uh, something that I think we desperately need to know about. Now, for those of us who don't know, who, can you like break down personalism for us on just like a lay level of what it is? I, I can try, sure. So personalism is this view that um, originated, well, it sort of slowly grew into being. It started back in the middle of the 1700s, and it originated as a response to a couple of philosophical systems that, um, from a philo philosophical perspective, we call them metaphysical monism. Um, but from a theological perspective, we can think of them as forms of impersonal pantheism. The, the idea is that only one thing ultimately exists. And so one of these systems originated with a thinker named Spinoza, another originated with a thinker named Hegel, and they both believe that only one thing exists, its ultimate reality itself, and it's either impersonal or at best quasi-personal. And of course, this way of thinking about ultimate reality isn't consistent with uh, Jewish or Christian orthodoxy. And, um, and this is important because Spinoza was Jewish and Hegel was Christian or at least operating in a Christian context. And so they got a lot of pushback uh, first over their impersonal characterization of ultimate reality. And there were folks who 
uh, uh, stood up and wanted to defend the personhood of God over against the impersonal portrayals of ultimate reality that Spinoza and Hegel were peddling. And these folks were the first ones to be called personalists. They defended the personhood of God over against the impersonal characterizations of ultimate reality that these metaphysical monists were giving us. But then after they had successfully defended the personal, the personhood of God, attention shifted to the implications for human persons um, on this pantheistic sort of view. The idea was that if we were just parts, if we were merely parts of some larger whole, that didn't do justice to the special significance of human beings, the special worth or dignity that we have, which was widely understood to be grounded in our um, moral agency, our ability to make our own morally significant choices and enact them on the basis of our own best understandings of things. And they thought, well, if Spinoza and Hegel are just characterizing us as parts of a larger whole, we don't really have the kind of independence of being or of action that's required to be moral agents in the sense required for being bearers of dignity. So they then, the personalists then, took on this task of defending human dignity by coming up with new ways of thinking about our relationship to ultimate reality that wouldn't make us merely parts of the larger whole. After, and there are lots of different ways of doing this, lots of, lots of different variants of personalism. One of the variants was um, devised by a fellow named Borden Parker Bown, who came to teach philosophy at uh, Boston University in the last quarter or so of the 19th century. And so uh, he made Boston University a sort of bastion of personalistic thought, of, of his form of personalism. It actually came to be called Boston personalism because it was mainly located in Boston. Um, but he created uh, a whole bunch of, of students he, and sent them out into the world. And one of them actually founded the philosophy department at USC, which is my alma mater, where I studied with Dallas Willard and where I first learned about personalism, even though I didn't study it deeply there. But that is what started the, um, uh, the tradition, the specific personalist tradition that King was exposed to when he went to Boston University to study for his PhD in the early 1950s. Now, I think and, it uh, might be new ahead. information for a lot of people that Martin Luther King Jr. had a PhD in philosophy mm -hmm. from Boston, Boston University. We often think of him as a black minister, mm -hmm. maybe as a practical theologian, but really, academically, he was, a he was a philosopher. And and most people will tell you, like, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, but you think you're, for me anyway, I've associated his doctorate with something like in theology. MDiv or, yeah. you know, like MDiv, That's but like right, something yeah. of, yeah. you know, like the theological side. But he was a, he was a, he had a PhD in philosophy. And so you're kind of unpacking for us sort of the some of the you know intellectual grounding that That's influenced right. and shaped mm -hmm. MLK's views because we often just think of him in the late 50s early 60s and his project of mm -hmm. civil rights but what you're doing is taking us all the way back to seminary days to That's try right. to put him into his context maybe you can talk to us a little bit about the the intersection between the philosophical um, system of personalism and the image of God and kind of the, the theology that he would have brought with him 
from his black church context. Right. Yeah. So that's very important. And, you know, personalism, uh, as I said, has theological roots. It was initially a defense of the personhood of God uh, by predominantly Christian thinkers. Uh, and then they turned their attention to a defense of the dignity of, of the human being. Um, but this was ultimately for them grounded in their and their Christian understanding of the human being is made in the image of God. So our status as moral agents is one of the ways of cashing out what it means, or at least part of what it means to be made in the image of God. There are lots of different ways of thinking about what that means, but I think that sort of the original uh, way of thinking about that among the Greek fathers of the church, at least, was to see us as having some of the same attributes of God that made us um, persons, like God is a personal being, we also are persons. And so that would be having a, a sphere of conscious awareness that's uniquely our own, within which we can deliberate and consider different options for action and choose uh, and then enact um, our our decisions in the world. Um, and, and that's where our moral agency comes from. Um, and so that's a large part of what it means to be uh, image bearers of God is to be, um, well, that's the source of creation. Humans create by acting uh, on their own or initiating their own action. So um, this is very deeply connected with the idea that human beings are made in the image of God. One of the interesting things that happened in the uh, 20th century uh, as personalism began to move away from um, a focus on these deep metaphysical issues and focus more on practical, ethical, and political issues is that a lot of people who were not necessarily coming at this from a, a Christian perspective or a theistic perspective found something to admire about the personalist view of the human being. Mm. And they thought, you know, even, even without the, the deep metaphysical or theological grounding, they could recognize in themselves the kind of being that the personalists were saying human beings were. And they thought, yes, that's right. And over against the totalitarian regimes that came to be in, uh, in, in Europe and, and in Russia in the first half of the 20th century, um, which just treated individuals as if they were sort of cogs in a big machine. Uh, the individual existed to serve the purposes of the collective. The personalist stood up against that and said, no, that's not right. You need to um, respect the dignity of each individual human being. Um, it's true that we are not just individuals existing in isolation from one another. We are communitarian beings. We, we live in community with one another. And part of what it is to be a human being is to be in community with other persons. But that doesn't reduce us to just a part of a larger whole. And so this is where the um, the human rights movement in Europe came from, was this resistance to uh, these totalitarian regimes, which the personalists actually saw as a political manifestation of the same kind of metaphysical monism or impersonal pantheism that um, the first wave of personalists were, uh, were combating. Now, I'm going to try to restate some of these ideas for us and just help bring our, our listeners along because I think you're, you're making some hugely important points. Now, one thing we want to understand is that personalism was sort of the philosophical foundation for a lot of ideas that we take for granted now. 
you know, the the idea of human rights um, and looking at things like the Holocaust. Why was the Holocaust a crime against humanity? Mm-hmm. That is an expression of personalism. So even if people have never heard the term personalism, as Aaron has so eloquently um, tried to lead us on that that journey there of, of, of the history, we have to understand that even if we've never heard of this word, we, it, see, it. we see it. It undergirds us, us many of our common and shared ideas about human dignity. Now, counter against that is this kind of the idea of co- the collective, which we're going to get more into Marxism and, mm-hmm. and all of that. But that but the idea of personalism is the idea of human dignity as an individual, yet we live in community, but we are not merely just a cog in a wheel of, of like in the collectivist structure. So we have that's our right. Own unique dignity yeah. and value and worth. So the idea of the, the, the United Nations, for example, mm-hmm. if people go read the preamble to the United Nations Charter, it's a very eloquent, and I love how Aaron said it, it's a political expression of, of, you know, this moral concept of the human person, but this has deep roots in the Judeo-Christian worldview. And so the idea of human dignity and human rights is something that is, is deeply rooted in the, the broad Judeo-Christian understanding of being created in the image of God. It's a, you know, in a theological context related to the doctrine of creation, but there were secular people who could who could appreciate personalism. I'm thinking of even modern examples of people like Helen Pluckrose, mm-hmm. who is not a Christian, but she holds to what she calls kind of a classical liberal view of the human person. And she would be a modern example of a secular humanist or a personalist. Yes. And so we, you know, this it's it's a very important idea that has kind of waned a bit in in recent decades but it did provide an important intellectual grounding for the endeavor of martin luther king jr so do i have all that correct aaron (laughs) yeah that's basically correct yeah um but i if i can share a an image with you i'll add a little nuance to that great so let's see Oh, went back to the beginning. Let me. Okay, so that's the uh, the slide that I wanted to show there, um, and what the personalists were trying to do was to find the the sweet spot between competing views that they took to be unhealthy extremes. So on this diagram here, you've got a sort of vertical axis going up and down between the sort of metaphysical monism or impersonal pantheism that I was describing earlier, which sort of ab- absorbed human beings with their individuality and their their moral autonomy and so forth, absorbed them into a larger whole and treated them as mere parts of that larger whole without any real significance or being in their own right. But then toward the, ni- the end of the 19th century, there arose a, an, an opposing threat, and that was the threat of reductive naturalism, which 
tried to reduce the human being to its constituent parts. So on the one hand, you've got this force trying to absorb the human being and, and treat it as a part of a larger whole. On the other hand, you've got this force, this intellectual force trying to reduce the human being to a collection of parts and to deny that it's a whole in itself. They were trying to find the sweet spot between those two opposing views, which they took to be unhealthy extremes. On the political uh, spectrum, which is on, on the axis moving uh, horizontally left to right here in this image. You've got totalitarian collectivism, uh, which I was discussing earlier, which they saw as the political manifestation of metaphysical monism or impersonal pantheism, uh, which absorbed the individual into the social whole and didn't give it any um, sort of being or dignity in its own right. It's, it's the whole purpose of the individual is to be part of the collective and contribute to the, the well-being of the whole without any concern for itself as an individual. On the other hand, you have these sort of extreme forms of individualism, which are associated with classical liberalism and some and, and capitalism, this idea that I am an individual with rights. Um, I don't have any essential connections to any other human beings. Um, it's you know me and my rights against the world, and you bring that into a capitalist economic context, and it's very easy to uh, translate that into pursuit of self-interest at the expense of of other people. And so the personalists saw both of those as problematic extremes, and they tried to find the sweet spot between them where they could acknowledge that yes, each of us is a unique individual um, we, and we have to respect that about each other, but at the same time, we are bound to each other in community and we um, should never adopt the posture of uh, pursuing our own self-interest at the expense of others. Very good. So now let's kind of shift over to the BLM side and talk about some of those intellectual influences and then we'll begin to compare and, and contrast them. So maybe you could talk to us about what you see as being some of those influence and influences and how that movement has been shaped. Sure. Um, it's, it's harder to pin um, the Black Lives, Lives Matter organization down in terms of its ideo ideological commitments. Um, you know, and we're focusing here on, in my mind, you've, you've got sort of the, the slogan, Black Lives Matter, you've got the organization, Black Lives Matter, and then you've got this broad movement that's, that's sort of taken off. And I think it's important that we make distinctions among those three different things, because a lot of people who have, as we might say, jumped on the, the Black Lives Matter bandwagon over the last, um, you know, nine months or so, um, don't really fully understand what the organization stands for and what all of its assumptions are about human beings and reality and justice and so forth. And so there are a lot of well-intentioned people who will affirm Black Lives Matter without really knowing the ins and outs of what they're affirming. So I want to say that because I don't think um, everyone uh, who who endorses Black Lives Matter actually buys into the underlying ideology completely. Um, but the organization does show signs of being influenced heavily by Marxism and neo-Marxist views, critical theory, and um, all of these ideologies sort of filtered through postmodern thought in the way that um, Helen Pluckrose, uh, who, whom you mentioned earlier, and her um, 
colleague and co-author James Lindsay, who, who wrote a book recently called Cynical Theories, they've started calling this family of theories uh, critical social justice theory. So, so there are a whole bunch of influences in the background. Um, there's an interesting um, interview from 2015 uh, with one of the founders of the Black Lives Matter organization, a, a woman named Patrice Cullors. And um, the interviewer, a fellow named Jared, Jared Ball, was asking her um, about uh, criticism that had been leveled against the, the organization, and that is um, some people are concerned that there's a lack of ideological direction in Black Lives Matter. And uh, Ms. Cullors uh, replies, we actually do have an ideological frame. Myself and, and Alicia, Alicia Garza, who's one of the other founding members of the organization, uh, she says, we in particular are trained organizers. We are trained Marxists. We are super versed on ideological theories. So trained Marxists, what does that mean when she says it. I'm not entirely sure. Marxism is one of those philosophies where there are lots of different variants and a lot of uh, disagreement about what constitutes Marxist orthodoxy and what constitutes Marxist heterodoxy. So I'm not entirely sure what she is claiming about, about herself by saying that she's a trained Marxist. I mean, uh, you can get the general idea, but what specifically does she mean? I'm not sure. <clears throat> But what does seem to be pretty clear is that um, the kinds of folks who originally became involved with Black Lives Matter are folks that were promoting views and assuming and making assumptions uh, that, that are native to this family of theories that, that Helen Pluckrose calls critical social justice theories. So I'll stop there and you can <laughs> ask for further clarification. No, that, that's a lot. I actually saw that interview and oh what I relate her, um, what I relate her as saying or relate to it is um, the idea of really focusing on the oppressed and the oppressor and mm -hmm. how that goes all the way back to like that Marxist school of thought. And um, and then the the disorganization of a society and what it takes to be able to pull down the oppressor class. Mm -hmm. And that is really when I look at an agenda, if I were to say, you know, does BLM have an agenda? I would say that this isn't one of the main agendas of BLM. I know they talk about equity and equality and, you know, the, the, um, not the nuclear family, but how they would probably define it more as like tribes and, you mm -hmm. know, raising your kid in the tribe and things like that. I would say that those things are secondary to um, almost like the uprooting of a society for the the bigger purpose of pulling down an oppressor group. Mm hmm. Yeah, that that's consistent with my sense of of the group and its commitments. You know, I, you mentioned the um, attack on the on the family, um, they got a lot of bad press from conservative outlets over a statement that they did at one point have on their website, but I wasn't able to find it when I looked recently. So they, they may scrubbed have, their website. They, okay. Yeah, they yeah. scrubbed it a couple of yeah. months ago, probably maybe four now, I would say, okay. if not more. And mm -hmm. um, But you can get it in the archive. Like if you right. go in the Wayback yeah. Machine, you can get it. Right. So. No, I found it there. It yeah. says, we disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family structure requirement by supporting each other as extended families and villages that collectively care for one another, especially our children, to yeah. the degree, degree that mothers, parents, and children are comfortable. So yeah, so so there was that. I'm not sure what sort of ideological commitment that uh, that is stemming from, other than just a sort of general um, desire to overturn the 
oppressive structures of Western culture. And mm -hmm. I think they somewhat are influenced by African spirituality. Okay. Um, we, Monique and I did a whole video about, I think it was with Patrice Cullors. It was another interview where she talked more about her personal religious beliefs mm. and, and, and she's deeply influenced by African spirituality. Mm -hmm. And so I think that from the organizers perspective of black lives matter, they're really kind of this mix of Marxism through the lens of critical social justice with the spiritual take of African spiritualism. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of all homogenized there together in in the movement and again okay. we're speaking of blm as a, as an organization so if you're mm -hmm. you know giving money to blm the organization know what you give into yeah these are the organizers and this is their worldview that is that is behind that yeah. so now talking about marxism did was MLK influenced by Marxism at all? Do you think or is there any proof of that in um, either his writings, his way of thinking? Well, yes, he was. He, he um, actually took a winter break when he was a, a student um, and read uh, Marx's uh, Capital and also the Communist Manifesto. Uh, he wanted to understand where these guys were coming from. King was a was a very serious intellectual. I mean, this is how he spent his winter break. Uh, reading Marx and reading Lenin, um, he and he really loved ideas. I mean, you, you really get the sense from him that he he really enjoyed thinking and learning and working through these ideas. And this is part of what made him such a powerful figure later on. Obviously, he had a gift for oratory, um, but he wasn't just blowing hot air when he opened his mouth and used that gift. He had substantial ideas that he fully understood when he. Um, worked them into these incredible speeches and sermons that he gave. Um, but the influence of Marx, I wanted to, to give you a quote from King um, that's from uh, the piece that's often republished and reprinted as My Pilgrimage to Nonviolence. Um, this was originally a chapter, a part of a chapter in his first book, Stride Toward Freedom. Then it was excerpted and published in a magazine or journal. And, and since it's been reprinted countless times, and it's easy to find on the web if you want to read it. But um, he says that I, I read all of the influential historical thinkers from a dialectical point of view, combining a partial yes and a partial no. He was a very critical and thoughtful reader, whether he was reading people who had friendlier views or people whose views um, would be antagonistic to King's own, as, as was the case with Marx and Lenin. And so he read Marx and Lenin, and he actually followed um, what had become by that point uh, a fairly standard move for personalists uh, and, for, and for Christian personalists especially, which is to say that Marxism is a Christian heresy. And what's meant by that is it captures some really important truths that Christians should be committed to, but it mixes them with some really bad errors. And so as a whole, you have to reject the ideology. You have to re reject the philosophy. But the fact that it has caught on 
with with large groups of people um, shows that there are important things that the church is neglecting, important truths that the, that the church is neglecting, and we need to pay attention to those things. Now, for Marxism and Leninism, the things, the truths that they had captured and, and that um, King thought the church needed a sort of wake-up call about was social justice and the plight of the poor. And you can sort of add to that um, worries about capitalism as a perfectly adequate economic system. So there was some truth in Marxism and in communism concerning these issues. Um, these needed attention and we needed to do something different about them. But King um, was deeply worried about and rejected uh, the at what he called the ethical relativism of uh, Marxism and communism. He was very worried that they seemed ready to employ any means necessary to achieve their utopian end ends, including doing horrible and unjust things to people. Um, he worried over their materialism and their secularism, the fact that they didn't have place not only for God and religion, but also for any high-minded, idealistic, ethical um, thinking at all. It was all about, you know, the, the material conditions of human life. And if you get the material conditions of human life and get all the basic material requirements satisfied, then, then everything will be fine and we'll enter into utopia. So he, he didn't think that was right. And then he also didn't like the totalitarian nature of the political regimes that Marxism inspired. Um, again, the standard personalist line is one that King espouses again, and that is these totalitarian systems treat the individual as if it's just a cog in a machine. They don't have any respect for individual human beings as bearers of dignity. That's not right. So those three points he thought were um, sort of end-all, be-all points for rejecting uh, Marxism, but he thought Christians needed to learn from these movements and pay attention to things that had they had been neglecting for a long time. So if I might summarize, make sure that I try to understand what you're saying there is it sounds like King rejected Marxism as a framework. Mm -hmm. um, but he was trying to say, look, what's good about this is, is calling attention to maybe some neglected parts of scripture and needing to have a, a fuller, more robust conversation about God's justice standards and looking at um, doing doing more work on on looking at justice issues and in particular for his concern how that played out in the black community would would that be a fair um, summary of of his position? I think it would be. Yeah, and this isn't the only. Um influence on King in this regard. King was also deeply influenced by a fellow named Walter Rosenbusch, who was uh, the, the father of what came to be called the social gospel. And um, King, from very early on, uh, I mean, he, he talks about in My Pilgrimage to Nonviolence, how even as a young boy, even, even though he came from um, a an economically secure household, his uh, many of his playmates uh, did not, and he and this worried him and disturbed him and you know made him feel bad. And so he he was concerned both about racism and segregation, and economic justice from a very early age. And when he was exposed to Rosenbush and his teachings, um, 
not not in person, but through reading Rosenbush's work, um, he immediately recognized this as as the ver the version of the gospel that he endorsed. Um, he had some criticisms of Rosen, of Rosenbush too. Like I said earlier, it was always partially yes, partially no with King. He was a critical reader. He found things to object to in Rosenbush, but he really appreciated the extent to which Rosenbush said, "Look, it's it's not, it, if you say that you care about people's souls, but you don't care about their material well-being as well, then your purported care for their souls rings hollow." You've got to care for the whole person, body and soul. And that means you have to care about their economic and material conditions as well as their spiritual conditions. You know, one of the things that I have heard over the last few years about MLK is that he was a socialist. Is, you know, are some of these ideas where people get the, the notion that he was a socialist or maybe he was fully a socialist and I'm just unaware? He, he was a, what he called a democratic socialist. So he did think that capitalism did not have a sufficient moral core in itself to keep it um, serving the common good. Um, he thought that um, something more directive was needed in order to create more just distributions of goods and wealth in society. So he, he was, he did lean in a more socialistic direction, but clearly not the kind of socialism that you would associate with the totalitarian regimes of, of Europe. His socialism was the kind, I mean, the folks who, who are of his school of thought, not just the Boston personalists, um, but Rausenbush and others, saw the early church as the ideal of socialism, where you know people were sharing everything and getting together in groups and not exactly living communally, but to an extent, you know, sharing their belongings so much that, that it was almost like a communal form of life. Um, so the, you know, the early church is represented in acts. This was their, their ideal for Christian community and for a just society. So we have a comment from Jeremy. I want to pop it up here. Um, he says, question. Oh, scroll down. I, I meant the most recent one. All the way to the bottom. Uh, I think one thing that separates King from BLM is that he seemed to have believed in the basic ideas of the Declaration of Independence and was calling America to live up to them. Mm -hmm. BLM has rejected these ideals. Um, what do you think about about that statement? I think that's basically correct. King was very pro-America in terms of the ideals that had been espoused in our major documents uh, you know, since the beginning of the nation. Um, of course, he believed that we had failed very badly to live up to those ideals, and, and I think that's undeniable. Um, and so, but, but he didn't see that as a reason to give up on the dream of America. He saw that as a reason to sort of double down and try again and try to get it right this time. Now, we're talking about um, some of the contrasts or differences between King and BLM. Can you kind of give us more of a bigger picture of like what really are the significant differences between BLM and MLK? Sure. So the, the first thing I want to talk about, and I think this is ultimately the most important thing, is that you've got radically different pictures of the human person. From these two perspectives. Um, 
with King and his personalism, um, when you talk about what it is to be a human being, you're talking principally about um, being a conscious, rational being capable of independent action on the basis of your own thoughts and feelings and values. And the idea is that that's what all of us fundamentally are, regardless of what race you are, regardless of what gender you are, regardless of where in history you exist, regardless of, uh, of where in world geography you exist, um, there is a common human nature and it consists in personhood. And all of us have that. And all of us are therefore bearers of dignity. And that needs to be respected in every single instance of human being. There's just no robust view of human nature comparable to that among critical social justice theorists. I, I don't know that it's fair to say that critical social justice theorists um, are really doing metaphysics, uh, but their focus when they talk about human persons is so much on our social roles and, you know, I'm sure most folks listening have heard about uh, intersectionality. And this is about sort of looking at how people are bearers of multiple social roles and then trying to, or social identities, and trying to figure out how uh, each constellation of social identities um, contributes to a person's marginalization or, or oppression. But the idea here is that the focus on the human being is so much through the lens of um, of, of looking at our social roles or our social identities, that it's not clear that they actually believe there's anything more to us than our social identities. And that means that there is nothing in common between, you know, one person and another, except insofar as they share a social identity. And consequently, there's no basis for universal human dignity respect of others who are different from you. There's just no basis for that at all. And this has significant implications for knowledge and understanding as well, insofar as um, we are different from one another in terms of our social identities. Most of the folks coming out of the critical social justice framework are going to be very skeptical about the possibility of our understanding one another. And this is where that whole idea of standpoint epistemology comes from that we were discussing last time I was on the show with you. Uh, we won't go there again because it's complicated, but you know, if you wanna ask questions about it, that, that would be fine. So both metaphysically and epistemologically, you've got radical difference between these two views. One insisting on a common uh, core to human existence where all of us are on the on a certain level the same um, despite our more superficial differences in terms of social identities and and therefore we can understand one another because there is not only a common human nature but there is commonality of human experience for the critical social justice folks including many black lives matter folks um, they're going to deny that there's not enough commonality to ground mutual understanding. I think that's hugely important though, because I think that that's part of how the, even the public conversation mm -hmm. plays out. You know, Monique's noticed this, that, you know, it's almost like she's not a real black person because she doesn't engage in the same 
kind of majority black think, if you will. Mm -hmm. Although we are not monolithic. Yeah. (laughs) Just saying. Not all black people are the same, except you need all. Until you're not. Until you're not the same. And then, you know, it's all. You get put in the same category as everybody else is not the same. (laughs) John McWhorter just put put out, uh, I think it's part of his forthcoming book, um, to uh, those of us who t- subscribed to his Substack feed the other day. Uh, and it was just a sort of litany of the internal contradictions. And, I, and that was one of them. We're not monolithic, but we're, you know, we're, we're all uh, sort of common enough where we can understand each other and, and no one else can from the outside. Mm-hmm. So. so the idea of personalism then is that there is this common human experience, which we talked about last time. There's shared knowledge mm-hmm. that there's true, like Monique likes to say, truth doesn't have a color. That mm-hmm. there, you don't you don't arrive at different truths simply based on your your sex or your or your race, how much melanin you have. Mm-hmm. Um, there's rather there's a common truth. There's common human experiences. That, two plus two is four. That bind because us. It's four, not because I'm black. Yeah, and right. then we all need love. We all need acceptance. We yes. all need mm-hmm. kindness. You know that that and that there's these things that kind of bind us together. What we used to call um, the common human experience or human mm-hmm. dignity. But now in, in kind of the critical social justice stream, everyone is divided, you into know, their own personal in, truth. Yeah. Into their, these little silos mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. where then you can't kind of cross over into truths. <laughs> well, and it's siloed based on experience or mm-hmm. melanin. Yeah. 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 The two are are supposed to be tied together that, you know, your experience shapes uh, itself up around the demographic categories that you fall into, um, because it has a lot to do with the way people treat you on the basis of being a woman or a man, black or white and so on. So So, So I have a question. We have a question on Facebook. mm -hmm. And this is from my dear friend, Nathan Neighbor, who is my brother from another mother. He has said... This year on social media, on Martin Luther King Day, what he's noticed is that there's been a major push to reframe King as less nonviolent and less mainstream Christian than we know him to be. And I've seen this too. Like um, I I saw, I want to say a tweet from Jamar Tisby recently where he was like, you know, people think that King would be saying, don't be violent, but in reality he would be rioting or something like that. And he would be protesting and marching with BLM that he, he wasn't necessarily as nonviolent as many people have made him seem. And so there is... I would agree like this restructuring or reframing of King. How would you respond to that? Well, it's not true. Um, he's, he, he was as nonviolent as we, as we take him to be. Now he did get angry. I mean, as a human being, he, he got angry. Uh, he didn't always live up to his own ideals. I mean, that much is true. So we don't want to um, imagine him to be a sort of a superhuman uh purely saintly sort of figure. Um, but when it comes to the views he actually endorsed, uh, no, I, I don't see any evidence of him um, being open to rights. I mean, people like to cite that um, that statement that he made where, you know, something along the lines of rioting is the, the language of the oppressed or something like that. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, he said that. He, he had a merciful and understanding um, attitude toward those who did not share his commitment to nonviolence, but he didn't try to excuse them or affirm the rioting. Um, 
one of the things that he admired about Gandhi uh, was that when Gandhi had initially tried to recruit other people to the cause of nonviolent resistance, um, and he gathered them together for a march, uh, they uh, they failed. They didn't live up to his nonviolent expectations. And so he called off the march and sent people home and said, we're not going to do this again until you all can figure out how to be nonviolent the way I'm asking you to be. Um, King admired that about, about Gandhi. Uh, he did not think that it was okay to be uh, violent, to riot, and so on. At the same time, again, he was he tried to be understanding. King's un, King's theory of love, his theology of love, of agape love, says uh, that love is fundamentally a matter of understanding goodwill. And that's what it is toward all people. And so you try to understand other people. You try to understand where they're coming from, and in understanding, you try to be as forgiving as possible and always maintain an attitude of goodwill toward them. Um, but that, and so King did that when he was talking about people who rioted, but that doesn't mean he was affirming what they were doing. Hmm. So I'm wondering when we look at the contrast between MLK and BLM, how would you characterize the differences in their vision for racial equality? You know, like yeah. what kind of outcomes is each of those streams trying to, to bring about? Yeah. So um, as far as I can gather, the standard line among folks coming out of the critical social justice family of theories, uh, and so I'd include BLM here, although I haven't seen a specific statement from uh, a BLM leader um, on, on this, but the basic idea is that you want to have um, a society where whatever the distribution of different demographic categories is in the society at large, you want to have basically the same distribution in every sector of life. So, you know, if um, one of the reasons Black Lives Matter started was because of this disproportionate representation among victims of police violence uh, of of blacks, especially black males. Why are black males on the receiving end of police violence um, at a rate that's about double their representation in the population as a whole? Um, and you know, the assumption then is that this must be uh, a product of racism somehow or other. Um, but the idea it would be that uh, in a just society, you would have an, a, a proportionate distribution. Um, However, you know, whatever the proportion of, of blacks is in society, that's the proportion they would make up among victims of police violence and so on and so forth. So you have this sort of wooden idea that you, you just have to like have matched percentages in every sector of society. And that's, that's a perfectly just society. Or so it seems to me. That, that seems to me that's where they're coming from. And what would have King's vision Yeah, that been? was going to be my question. Yeah, so King's vision is uh, what he called the beloved community. And... Um, I can put up a slide on this if you give me a moment. Let's see here. So the beloved community, this is an idea that he borrowed from another philosopher who was kind of on the fringes of personalism, um, a, a fellow named Josiah Royce, who was at Harvard. And um, Royce had a very interesting uh, set of views. Um, 
As you can go. see, Aaron has a whole talk about this. <laughs> um, <laughs> Royce, Royce had an interesting set of views. Um, one of the things philosophers worry over is what's called the problem of individuation. And the problem of individuation is basically a question of what makes you the unique, irreplaceable individual that you are. And um, one traditional view says that it has nothing to do with your attributes. It has to do with a non-qualitative feature of yourself. Um, and other views try to work, work out your individuation in terms of uh, unique constellations of attributes that you have. Royce actually had this interesting view of individuation where he said, um, God has given each person a uh, kind of unique uh, so, something that's uniquely valuable about them. Um, and, and actually, this is a matter of God's special love for each one of us. It's kind of like, you know how we ascribe sentimental value to some things where they take on a special value for us um, that may be above and beyond what their intrinsic value is? Royce thought that God had that that sort of feeling and sentiment toward every human being probably every entity that he created. So our, we're individuated by God's sentimentally valuing us in this way. And the, and the beloved community was supposed to be a community where everyone sees everyone else and loves them and values them more or less in the way God does and for the same reasons that God does. So that's how Royce sort of formulated this view. Um, but for, for King, uh, and here I want to look at the bottom of the slide here, um, this fellow named Gary Herstein, uh, who I don't know, he wrote a really great paper called The Roycean Roots of the Beloved Community, which was published in a, in a journal called The Pluralist back in 2009. And he observes that King's notion of the beloved community rotates around two principal axes, the beloved community as an embodiment of agopic love and the beloved community as the embodiment of the moral laws. Now, I already mentioned that um, agopic love for King is uh, a matter of um, having understanding goodwill for other people. It's not a matter of feeling primarily. Um, King was actually heavily influenced by a Lutheran theologian by the name of Anders Nygren, um, who wrote a book called Agape and Eros and tried to sort of developed an idea of agape by contrasting it with uh, the notion of eros or desire or desire love. And, um, and, and Nigren goes a little too far in trying to say that there's no feeling element in agape at all. But um, King wanted to say that there was something right about that. It's, it's not principally an emotional drive. It's a matter of commitment to the well-being of the other that he characterized as goodwill. And it was grounded in an understanding of the other's intrinsic value as a person. And um, this idea of agape is intrinsically connected to the possibility of the beloved community insofar as it naturally leads to post-conflict friendships rather than post-conflict enmity. And here's a statement from King from that same essay that I've mentioned before, My Pilgrimage to Nonviolence. He says, the nonviolent resistor must often express his protest through non-cooperation or boycotts. But he realizes that these are not ends in themselves. They are merely means to awaken a sense of moral shame in the opponent. The end is redemption and reconciliation. The aftermath of nonviolence is the creation of the beloved community, while the aftermath of violence is tragic bitterness. So that's King's vision for uh, a perfectly just social organization.
So he's really trying to help people kind of get to a point of mutual care and goodwill and love and understanding. And so for him, the protests weren't intended to punish. It was rather just to kind of highlight almost like a, we need to be better than this. And then to, to, but it wasn't to punish. It was, or it was to bring about a a true reconciliation and a true unity and love. That's right. He actually saw it as um, a way of calling forth the, um, the, the deep moral nature of the person who wasn't living up to it. Um, You know, he, he saw his enemy. He saw Eugene Bull Connor, for example, as someone that God loved who had a high moral calling that was basically identical to his own, to be a person infused with agape love for other people. But that assumes that there's a shared humanity and a shared moral law or natural law that they both bow to. And and that, that something about that is kind of rooted and grounded in the Judeo-Christian worldview. And and so there's many assumptions that that underlie that. And when I look at BLM, I don't see that shared vision no. of of humanity. Yeah, not only is there is there not a shared vision of humanity, no robust theory of a common human nature, but there's also so far as I know, no robust moral theory apart from the obvious one that um, oppressing other people is bad, uh, something like that, right? But King had a much more robust moral theory. Part of uh, the personalist view, uh, at least the strain of personalism that that King was trained in, Boston personalism, um, they did subscribe to what's called natural law theory. And um, you can see this peppered all throughout King's writings. I mean, one of the things, one of, probably his most um, frequently read piece is the letter from Birmingham jail. Probably lots of folks out there have read that at one point or another. And um, one of the things he does there is, is he addresses this objection that says, well, you know, how is it that you guys, you, you civil rights protesters can justify breaking some laws you know, while o- obeying others? Um, how's that a consistent position? And King says, well, there are two kinds of laws, just and unjust. And I agree with St. Augustine that an unjust law is no law at all. And he actually quotes Augustine on that point. It's Augustine's line, an unjust law is no law at all. Now that line comes from one of Augustine's lesser read works. It's called On the Free Choice of the Will. And this is a dialogue that Augustine wrote uh, between himself and a, and a theological novice. And it's ultimately a work about the problem of evil and um, why, you know, why and how God can justify allowing evil. But um, among other things in this dialogue, Augustine makes a distinction between God's eternal law and then temporal laws that either God gives or or humans can give. And if you situate this quotation, an unjust law is no law at all, in the context of Augustine's dialogue, you'll see that what Augustine means there is that the, the standard for a just or an unjust law is this eternal law. And when he says what the eternal law is, he says it's the law that we all can recognize that says that things should be perfectly ordered. Now, what does that mean? 
things should be perfectly ordered. Well, he gives some examples. He goes on to say, well, what it is for a human being to be, pers- or to be perfectly ordered is to have their reason or their rational faculties in charge of their desires or drives. This is exactly the view that Plato articulates in a number of dialogues, but um, probably most famously in the Republic. Plato has this view of the human soul as consisting in three main faculties or components. There's the the logos faculty of reason. There's the thumos faculty. Thumos means heart, but thumos functions more or less like what we think of as conscience. And then there's epithumia, which uh, is usually translated appetites when you're talking about Plato, but in Christian literature of the period or of a slightly later period, um, it is uh, usually translated lusts. So um, appetites, lusts, drives, desires. And Plato said what it is to be a just person is to to have your logos in charge and then have your thumos give you morally significant feelings that are aligned with what your logos has told you is true, morally speaking. You know, this is good, this is bad, this is right, this is wrong. Then your conscience comes in and convicts you and moves you to act in accordance with what your mind has told you. And then you um, have those two faculties working together to restrain your lusts or your appetites or your desires. And that's how you become a just person. That's what it is for a human being to be perfectly ordered. And so Augustine is actually tapping into Platonic philosophy when he's articulating this distinction between higher law and lower law, between eternal law and temporal law, between divine law and human law. And that's the that's the basis for natural law thinking. That's the basic framework for natural law thinking historically. And uh, King is aligning himself with this, but unless you have a pretty deep knowledge of the history of Western philosophy, you're not going to know what the significance of this quotation from Augustine is. And he goes on to then talk about Thomas Aquinas, and then he puts a personalistic spin on natural law, King's own teacher. So when King went to Boston University, he um, started off under the tutelage of a fellow named Edgar Sheffield Brightman, and Brightman was his um, was his uh, advisor and his dissertation director. But Brightman died a couple of years into King's time at Boston University, and then a fellow named Harold DeWolf took over. Um, Brightman had written a book called The Moral Laws back in 1933, where he developed a distinctively personalistic version of natural law theory, which has to do with um, the moral demand of respecting human personhood wherever it's found, including in yourself. And he has a lot of insightful and illuminating things to say about this. So King was through and through a natural law theorist, but a personalist natural law theorist. And he saw himself as drawing on the entirety of the natural law tradition, which interestingly enough originates with Plato and Aristotle. So pre-Christian thinkers, this is actually a strength because it suggests that the natural law really is woven into reality in a way that human beings can get at with their reason. Um, And so even folks who are not in possession of the special revelation uh, that comes through Christianity can figure some really important things out, morally speaking. And I think this is part of the reason why personalism appeals to folks who are not also religious. I think, um, just to summarize all of that, I think that what you're saying there is very important because uh, Martin Luther King Jr. is deeply influenced, again, by Western, what we might call 
you know, Western philosophy. And Augustine is a huge part of that base, but Augustine gets a lot of his ideas back from Plato. And so to trace that line when when King is is appealing to what is just and morally good and and that sort of thing, he is making the foundational assumption that falls in line with the broad Judeo-Christian framework. When we get to BLM, mm-hmm. we are we are in a different different lane. Different lane, a different philosophical lane. Yeah. And so in that way, they're more in the lane of standpoint epistemology, which was mm-hmm. our previous episode. And that is more of the tradition that they stand in. And so we have to, I know this is fairly complicated, but it's it's an easy meme on social media to just say MLK is an extension of, mm-hmm. uh, or BLM is an extension of MLK. But that misses the profoundly different tracks of the philosophical families or roots that these two things grew up from. Grew up from. Yes. So we have to this. We have to be grown ups. We got to be adults, and we got to understand some some things here, so that we don't just fall into a into an you know propagating bad information. Yeah. So um, there's a question or. Yeah, there's a question on YouTube from Caleb at Engage Truth. He says, has BLM, sorry, take off my glasses so I can see it. Has BLM ever communicated a path towards healing and unity? It seems like the only end goal for BLM is a desire for justice, but in reality, it's endless shame, canceling and breaking relationships, which truly then is not justice. Yeah. Have you have you seen because um, I have some thoughts about about that, actually, um, and I just misplaced this comment now. OK, here it is. Um, have you seen BLM communicate a path toward healing or, or unity? Not really. I mean, there are certain things that they that they say will lead toward healing and unity. But as the commentator observed, they tend to actually lead towards shame and disunity. At least that's the way it seems to me. But I'm really interested in what you have to say about this, Monique, because you're more closely connected uh, to, to this issue. Well, I think that, I one, I've, I have not seen to date any type of um, manifesto, so to speak, or like agenda toward any form of true unity. I think they call for a lot of um, equity and equality and a lot of things that white people must do in order for um, in order for there to be any kind of unity or um, equality. So there's that side of it. I think they, they speak into a lot of social justice issues and say, you know, we have to tear down these systems before there can be equality. But I've never seen anything where there is... Um, a true pathway forward for unity to say, Hey, this is how we actually come together and become one of one mind. The one mind um, thought process is really more um, rooted in the idea of anti-racism 
where when you think like me and you join this movement of anti-racism to, you know, remove racism, remove homophobia, remove, you know, all of the gender issues and things like that, then we can be one. But until you do that, we truly can't be unified. We can't be one because you're always operating in racism, which is always Mm -hmm. operating against my good. But again, with the lack of definitions, it's unclear as to how do we actually do that, one. And two, your definitions of justice and unity may not align with mine, seen as how I am a a historic Christian. And so at that point, it's kind of like your hands are tied. I can't necessarily participate with you in anti-racism because anti-racism in and of itself is a racist framework. Mm Mm-hmm. So I don't know, that's kind of like, I don't, when it comes to unity, I don't see any true pathway forward for unity or for anything else with with BLM. I don't even, you know, just being black, and this is a whole nother thought that I was having earlier today. It's like, I don't even see BLM putting forward a, a thought or a call for a black agenda. Like when we're talking about how do we, um, you know, better black people or people of color within, uh, you know, within the United States, even if unity wasn't their goal, there's no true call or thought for what they should do within the black community. What I see them calling for, though, is um, like more black abortion centers or abortion mm-hmm. centers in black communities, the degradation and declina- um, declining of the black family. I don't the black see man. the black. Yeah, the black man, especially the black man has no place within mm-hmm. the realm of BLM. And so these are things that I see as being completely different to to King and, um, and King's goal and call for unity. Well, we got to wrap it up, but I think that this has been just getting on my own. I was just feeling like talking, (laughs) but this is, this has been really helpful. I I think, you know, just as one last question, Aaron, when we think about MLK's vision for what he hoped for after the protests, after, after the, the civil rights movement, like, what was the world that you think that MLK envisioned? Was it a kind of a post-racial society where there was that persons would all be seen as equal and and not judged according to their race? Like what was MLK's hope in this in this beloved community when it came to race? Yeah. So, I mean, it, it's it's kind of hard to say. um what value King might have ascribed to our um, our social identities and the differences which obviously would persist in a in a world without racism, let's say. I mean, there would still be differences. And um, you, you King does talk about the need to develop um, a, a black identity. Um, that that black people can be proud of, but he usually sees this as more of a, a sort of counterweight, providing a sort of counterweight to the damage that racism and segregation have done to the black psyche. Beyond sort of pulling folks up from a, a place where they they feel devalued to a place where they feel equally valued, it's not clear to me that there would still be 
a, a significant amount of value that King would attach to maintaining um, and, and placing emphasis on our distinctive social identities. Uh, it seems to me that the famous line from his most famous speech that, you know, he wants to live in a world where, and he wants his children to live in a world where they can be judged not by the color of their skin, but the content of their character is maybe one of the best guides we have to thinking about um, a, a just society and what that would look like for King. And that what that means is we're going to have a, you'd have to have a much more robust uh, belief in the existence of moral character and virtue and a much clearer view of what counts as uh, a virtuous character trait and a, a real willingness to evaluate people from a moral standpoint and to appreciate the moral character of people than, than we do in present day society. I mean, people get wound up about the term colorblindness nowadays, which is um, perhaps unfortunately become the term that people uh, used to gloss this idea of a world where people aren't judged on the, on the color of their skin, but on the content of their character. Um, but it's, it's not really about being colorblind so much as it is about being morally sighted and morally focused. And so I think that's what King would want us to look at. Well, thank you, Aaron. Thanks for all of your time and just unpacking it all. I know that you've spent a lot of, and you've invested a lot of time in, in thinking this through and helping us, uh, you know, walk through these, this very interesting but complicated aspect of 20th century philosophy it's, that really affects our lives yeah, every day. day. It's so, always so thorough and so deep. Thank yeah. you. Well, my pleasure. Thanks yeah. for having me on the show. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. And we look forward to future conversations. Absolutely. So thank yes. you, Aaron. All right. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye. Okay. Right. We're going to, no, a... we're going to come back for some questions, but right now we're going to, we're going to talk a little bit about, you want to do this? I was going to answer this one question first. Are Before sure? we do that? Yeah. Okay. Just, I mean, because it's right here. All right. So, YouTube? yeah. From yes. Um, it says, NSC says, uh, yeah, sorry. Uh, I'm looking for it. No, there's one before that. There was that. one earlier. So it says, Africa is a continent. When African spiritualism is mentioned, it is beyond wrong. The countries in Africa also have different tribes. I am therefore confused by the African spiritualism comment. In my travels throughout Africa, what I noticed is that a lot of the tribes share a lot of the same spiritualism. And so even though they may look different when you are in Zambia versus when you are dealing with the Kosa people in South Africa, some of the the spiritual like symbolisms reflect the same thing. And I think when you get up into Northern Africa as well, you'll see the same thing. And so things like calling on your ancestors' names, um, going to have tea with the dead, um, caring for the bodies of dead people. Like there are different things that happen that may, um, may have different little different nuances to them, but the overall um, premise or the overall action is basically the same. And so when I say African spiritualism, one, this is the, that's the term that Patrice Cullors used herself in, in the interview. But secondly, it's because what I see when, you know, throughout my travels in Africa is 
it's a lot of the same um, actions that are shared between tribes, especially when the tribes are within the same country. And so, yes, Africa is a continent. It's a big continent. And a lot of the the tribal traditions have been shared throughout the continent. And so that is that's what we're meaning or what I'm meaning to help bring some clarification to your question. And then um, someone also said, are we still separating or merging um, BLM and like the hashtag and things like that? Again, we I saw an interview with Patrice Colors and I think it was Patrice Colors and not Alicia, but um, they she's the founder of BLM. They don't want actually the hashtag to be removed or the the movement to be removed from the name. And so at their request, you know, I keep it tied together. I think some people try and say, well, you know, I am for the movement, but I'm not for the organization. But in their minds, the movement and the organization are one and the same. And they've worked really hard to make sure that the movement isn't separated from the organization. So I just wanted to clear those two things up before we went along. Okay. That was it. All right. So go ahead and do the the next thing. Okay. So we have some really exciting news. We have partnered with Impact 360. If you were with us last year at our UP conference, Impact 360 actually sponsored our UP conference. Impact 360 is an organization geared toward, it's a discipleship organization geared toward youth and young adults. And what they have is a series of different programs from anywhere from a week long to two weeks to an entire um, gap year for young students to come and be enriched in their faith, to study missions and yeah, just learn more about why they are a Christian and what does it mean to be a Christian? And so the bottom line of all of that is that they're sponsoring the show. They're sponsoring the show tonight. Yes. So just another step in the the goals of all the things show is to acquire sponsorship. And so we're going to show you a video from Impact 360. Everywhere I looked, everything I read, All the things the world told me about who I was. What I should like. It was all there. The thinking had been done for me. But what if you can't shake the feeling that you are destined to be something else? Someone else? Someone other than just popular. Or unpopular. The smart one. The jock. The Christian. The sinner. In the world today... How does anybody know who? Or what to be. Or what to even know. I found those answers and more. I learned how to think through the superficial problems and transcendent issues before me. And begin to understand what God has revealed. And why faith is not blind. What I believe in my heart from my experiences. To know and respond to endless challenges of my faith with love and with confidence. So that I may listen and engage because I know what I believe is true. A community where you are transformed in your character as you discover your identity in Christ. And your God-given calling 
It's not only who you are, but where you should be. A community where you are cultivated as a leader. Where you will learn how to live a life of service to others as you follow Jesus Christ. The Impact 360 Institute is a community of experiential and holistic learning where you develop confidence in what you have always believed in your heart to be the truth. Then take what you know about God and what you know about yourself and live as an agent of change in your own community. Know Jesus more deeply. Be transformed in your character. Live a life of kingdom influence. Know, be, live. All right. So we hope that you'll think about uh, the potential help that Impact 360 might be to you in the discipleship of your kids. They have a great gap year program. They have a summer camp program. So go check them out. Out. We'll actually be there this summer yes. speaking to their, their camp, their, camp, their yeah. cohort of students that will oh, be, be happening on July 15th. We <laughs> yeah. coming for you, y'all. Yeah. So last week on the show, we talked about some ideas of things Christians can do right now as we're moving kind of in a, a you know, a, some difficult waters here for, for Christians. So I thought it would be fun to talk about some a couple of things we did to follow our own advice. Yes. Last night we did something hard as a family. Yes. We canceled Disney Plus. We watched our last WandaVision. <laughs> yes. It, but, you know, I was thinking about that today. And um, I was like, man, sticking, like staying true to what you say can be rough. Because I was like, last week I announced that I was leaving Biola. And then this week it's like canceling Disney plus. And I'm like, Lord, I'm, I really like WandaVision, <laughs> man, this one hurts, yeah. you know, but at what point do, do we say, you know, no, not today. And you know, what another thought I had was, was, you know, it, I know that we are, you know, we lean toward the right and I mean, politically and things like that and um, and more conservatively. And we are definitely for freedom of speech and all these things. And what would happen if this was happening on the left? Yeah. If the people if people on the left were being canceled for their use of freedom of speech. Yeah. Would we as people who say we love freedom of speech stand with those whose voice may be silenced. I think, and that's the thing about freedom of speech is you have to say, I might not like what you, what you what say, but I'm going to stand for your right to say it. Yes. Because someday I might need somebody to yes. stand for my right to say yes. it. So that's good. Mm-hmm. Uh, you spent some time researching a different bank. I did. So it's still a, a, a conversation, mm-hmm. but we're trying to get a bank that for the ministry that more, closely reflects our values as a ministry. Yes. And so and that has more than one branch in America. <laughs> that's, that's the thing people can we just give them like two branches. And we opened an account on gab. That was another thing we did this week. And we're working internally on strategies just to make the ministry not so dependent on social media. Cause we know that someday we could wake up and be locked out of our accounts and we don't want the ministry to collapse <laughs> If, if that happens. So we're working on strategies internally to make us less dependent mm-hmm. on big tech. So those are the things that we're doing Yeah, to, you know, we don't have to live it out perfectly and things take time and research, but, but you know, when we're 
the bringing this we can do yeah we, we can do we're working on that yeah so and make sure you're signed up to stay connected on our email list because then that way no matter what happens on social media you're going to still be connected to the family yes. so all right tomorrow is Monique's virtual birthday party. Happy birthday And you are invited. Yes, it's going to be my birthday. I'm so excited. I so love go birthdays. on YouTube tomorrow at 4 o'clock. It's our, uh, Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern. And you can uh, see the Center for Biblical Unity YouTube stream. And you can come log into Monique's birthday party. And if you're a monthly partner or a donor for Center for Biblical Unity, Go check your email because you have a special invite yes. to the party. Come to the party, y'all. We just gonna hang out and, and have a little fun. Yes, that is Stevie Wonder. Somebody said singing Stevie. I should not be singing. <laughs> no, I shouldn't. <laughs> but that is Stevie. I love that song. And Jeremy, I might be needing to um hit you up in a DM so you can tell me secretly what's going on on WandaVision. <laughs> okay. Oh, and now yeah. it's time for the tweet of the week. Oh, do we crash? All right, hold on. We're going to do it again. The tweet of the week. The, the tweet of the week. So here we've got it. What is it? Neil's always good for a tweet. I loved this. And it's a great uh, kind of capstone to our conversation tonight with Aaron. Jesus's take on tribalism. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And so mm. in our middle of our cancel culture, I love how Neil is calling the Christian back to the words of Luke that um, Christians, our call is truly to live out that ideal of, you know, what Aaron was talking about before of the, of the beloved community. Mm -hmm. And that we yes. want to recognize each other's common humanity. Yes. And to figure out, you know, how to, how to love each other better. And um, I, I just thought it was a, it was a great, it's a great tweet because uh, so much of the conversation today is just about muting voices that, mm -hmm. that don't agree with yep. you. Canceling relationships. We get letters from parents who have been canceled by their children. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes it's the, easier to cancel than to have a conversation. Let's yeah, be honest. In the name of Jesus. Because mm, I will cancel you in the name of Jesus. <laughs> don't play no games. <laughs> That's wrong. Y'all pray for me. So tribalism is really this idea of strong kind of in-group loyalty and whoever's in your in-group. It could be mm -hmm. according to your melanin. It could be according okay. to your ideology, uh, yeah. ideological tribalism. I think that's that's a lot of what we're seeing now with this social justice movement thing, too. I think a lot of people uphold when they're talking about critical theory or critical race theory, they uphold the black white binary. But in reality, more of what I see now is even like this ideological tribalism of, you know, like CTCRT, social, you know, critical social justice, whatever, and those who don't. And so I see us even shifting again more into those two tribes. Yeah. So that is our tweet of the week. All yes. right. Okay. Anything else that we want to talk about before we go away? Do you see any last minute questions that we need to field? I don't. Okay. I'm on Facebook. 
Oh, yeah. Um, we had asked Aaron if there was any books uh, for follow up on this whole question of King. So if you're if you're kind of into philosophy and you're a little bit of a, a nerd and you want to find out more about these issues, uh, this was Aaron's book recommendation. It's called God and Human Dignity, The Personalism, Theology and Ethics of Martin Luther King Jr. by Rufus Burrow. And that is kind of a little encapsulation of the show if you want that in written form and to do a deeper dive into these these questions yeah, for an encapsulation of this show i need a picture book y'all ain't got nothing <laughs> easy okay <laughs> can i get pop-ups like the toddler version this is deep hey do you have any live streams this week this week i don't okay next week i'm doing something i'm gonna be interviewing it's a little bit of a risk. I'm doing an interview with my uncle, uh, who is one of my my favorite people in the world. And um, I've been trying, I've been bugging him for a long time to come on my podcast. He's finally going to do it. So it's going to be about his journey uh, with his daughter, who is developmentally disabled. Mm. And just kind of looking at the very human side of human dignity. Mm-hmm. And that we don't just, because most of what I've learned about human dignity, I've actually learned from my aunt and uncle mm. in watching them for the last 30 years walk it out mm-hmm. with their daughter in the everyday way. And awesome. that's that's really where I've learned a lot of the thoughts that I have on this issue. And um, so he's going to come on and we'll see <laughs> How that is, but he's a, he's a, he's a pastor. Uh, he's been a, he, he's a job recruiter. He's an artist. He's an amazing guy that I love dearly. So I'm going to have him on the show. Awesome. So that's and in two weeks. Yes. And in two weeks, that same week, I am doing a live stream with Elizabeth Urbanowitz from Foundation Worldview. Yeah. It's going to be on Thursday. It's the, in two weeks. So two Thursdays. Um, at five o'clock, it's actually going to be at a different time. I think we have a time. graphic for that. Yeah. And it is, we are going to talk about talking to your kids about critical race theory, or at least some of the the pieces of critical race theory that are showing up in, you know, schools or potentially in a youth, not a youth group, but like in a children's church, because we're going to talk about youth the following Thursday. But, um, you know, what do you do when your kid comes home and, you know, wants to talk about pronouns and they're five? So... You know, having some of these conversations. How do we have these conversations with our kids? So we're going to do that. You're on Tuesday and I'm on Thursday. Yeah. So that's the 23rd and 25th. Yes. Be a big week. It is. (laughs) It is. Well, thank you, everyone, for joining us. We hope that you've enjoyed the show. Be sure to share the show. Hit the thumbs up. Make a comment. All of those things, again, help our algorithm. And even if you don't feel comfortable sharing the show publicly, send it to a few few friends in their inbox that Mm -hmm. you think... Um, might be interested in this conversation. Come hang out with us tomorrow between 4 p.m. and 5 p.m. Pacific time. For Monique's okay, virtual nice birthday Yes, party. we'll definitely be listening to Stevie. <laughs> I think. All right, good night, everyone. Thanks for listening to All The Things. Be sure to subscribe to our website at allthethingsshow.com and find us on YouTube Facebook, Instagram, or wherever you stream your podcast. Be sure to hit that subscribe button and the bell so you'll receive alerts when we post new shows. We'll see you next week.